Welcome to the New England Law Review Podcast. I'm the Executive Online Editor of the Law Review's Volume 48, Louisa Gibbs. The New England Law Review is a student-run organization that produces the flagship publication of New England Law Boston in Massachusetts. You can learn more about the school at nesl.edu and more about the New England Law Review at newinglrev, that's n-e-w-e-n-g-l-r-e-v.com. There you can find our current print issue, our online publication on remand, and our Massachusetts Criminal Digest, abbreviated as Mass Crim Digest. The Mass Crim Digest is the New England Law Review's online case summary database that provides citable, straightforward summaries of recent criminal law cases decided by the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, the SJC, that most impact criminal law and procedure here in Massachusetts. Editors of the New England Law Review compile the summaries. This episode will review Commonwealth v. Franklin, written by myself, Louisa Gibbs, and the case was decided on July 16, 2013. The citation is 465 Mass, 895, 2013. So let's start with the procedural history. A Superior Court jury convicted the defendant, Lewis Franklin, of first-degree murder based on deliberate premeditation for killing the victim, John Fralcone. The defendant appealed. The SJC affirmed and declined to order a new trial or reduce the murder conviction. So here are the facts. On August 23, 2004, three people, including the victim, wanted to buy a 20 rock of crack cocaine. The three people pulled together $14, called the defendant, known as G, and asked to purchase crack cocaine despite being short the full price, which was usually $20. The defendant met them in a pizza restaurant's parking lot, conducted the transaction, and left. The three purchasers went to a nearby park to smoke it, but soon learned that it was not real crack cocaine. The purchasers became very upset and called the defendant until he answered. The victim took the phone, cursed at the defendant, and the defendant agreed to meet them at the same parking lot to make it right, but he never showed up. A friend of the victim's, Edmondson, saw that the victim appeared pretty mad about getting ripped off by a guy named G. Edmondson pointed the victim towards Prospect Street, where he believed the defendant resided. The victim approached 28 Prospect Street, where Kersha Killiard lived on the third floor, her parents lived on the second floor, and the defendant's mother, Wanda Franklin, lived on the first floor. At trial, Kersha testified that she saw the victim pacing outside of the property, who told her that he was looking for G because G had beat the victim for some drugs. Kersha further testified that the victim threatened to destroy Wanda's property by throwing rocks at it, but Kersha directed the victim next door where the defendant actually resided. She then went inside and told Wanda about her interaction with the victim. Wanda testified that she found her son in the kitchen and asked him what he had been doing outside. When he answered equivocally, she gave him a look, indicating dissatisfaction, and then got ready for work. Wanda further testified that she did not divulge any specific information to the defendant that Kersha told her. Soon after, the defendant left the house and called one of the three purchasers, asking for the white boy they were with in reference to the victim. The purchasers directed the defendant to the victim. The defendant and the victim met and exchanged words, the defendant walked in one direction while the victim followed a few minutes later and then gunshots were heard. Officer Noon reported to the scene of the crime. Upon receiving a dispatch that shots were fired and there found the defendant with a gun wound that he died from soon after. There were a myriad of civilian witnesses describing the events immediately before, during, and after the shooting. For instance, resident Nina Hall, 
who heard but did not see the shooting, overheard the two men arguing about one going to the other's house and being disrespectful, as well as something about $15. Meanwhile, 14-year-old Robert Fouquet, whose room overlooked the scene of the crime, testified that he overheard a brawl between two men about money. He heard a shot, and upon looking out of his window, saw a man with a black hat, black coat, and blue jean shorts with light brown skin running away. Robert's 16-year-old brother, Willie, testified to the same description as Robert for one of the men, and he recalled the man demanding $1,000, something about five more dollars, and then four to five gunshots occurring. Eyewitness Erica Luyo saw a young black man walking towards the crime scene and, upon hearing the gunshots, showed the same man with a gun in his hands running towards Prospect Street. Later that day, Erica Luyo identified the shooter in a photo array, saying that the shooter, quote, looked like number two, but he had hair like number four, end quote. Number two was the defendant. Prior to the photo array, Luyo was informed that the shooter may or may not be in the photos, and she expressed at trial that she was not sure about her identification. Moreover, Kirsch's 13 to 14-year-old son, Joshua, and 10 to 11-year-old daughter, Imani, testified to the following. 1. Knowing the defendant as G. 2. Seeing his exit, the crime scene, by jumping over a fence after the shots were fired. And 3. Asking the defendant where he was going, to which he did not respond. Before the second grand jury on October 2007, the defendant's cousin, Carlos Hill, testified that the defendant informed him that he went to Florida because of the shooting. Quote, the defendant told him that he had played the dude, the dude realized it, and the dude told him he was going to throw rocks at his aunt's house, end quote. And they met again at the eventual crime scene where the defendant shot the victim four times. But at trial, Hill testified that his 2007 testimony was incorrect. The defendant told Hill that he left for Florida on the run from probation. Now that we've reviewed the procedural history and the facts of the case, let's look to the four issues presented to the SJC. 1. Whether the judge erred in allowing the Commonwealth's motion in limine admitting Kersha Killiard and Troy Anderson's testimony regarding the victim's threat to damage what he believed to be the defendant's home. 2. Whether the defense counsel's failure to request a specific instruction on eyewitness identification when given the chance to submit such an instruction and the defendant's counsel's failure to object to the absence of such an instruction constituted ineffective assistance of counsel. 3. Whether the prosecutor made three improper and prejudicial statements during the closing arguments. and 4. Whether the court should exercise its authority under Massachusetts General Laws Chapter 278, Section 33E, to grant the defendant a new trial because inconsistencies within the testimony rendered the verdict against the weight of the evidence. So with the holdings and reasoning. The first one, concerning the admission of testimony from Kersha and Edmondson's testimony, the judge did not err in admitting the testimony describing the victim's threats because, based on the totality of the evidence, the jury could reasonably infer that the defendant knew of the victim's threats against his mother's house when the shooting took place and that the defendant was motivated, at least in part, by these threats. The SJC reviewed this issue under the prejudicial error standard. The testimony was only admittable if there was e evidence that the defendant learned of the de victim's remarks before the shooting occurred and the remarks provided the defendant with a motive to kill the victim. 
The SJC found that the record contained abundant evidence for the jury to infer that the defendant learned of the victim's threats that, in turn, provided a motive for the defendant to kill the victim. The jury could infer this knowledge based on the following. 1. Hill's 2007 grand jury testimony telling the court that the defendant told him that he knew the victim had threatened his mother's home with violence. 2. The defendant calling one of the three purchasers asking about the white boy in reference to the victim once the victim had just left his mother's premises. And 3. Just before the shooting, witness Nina Hall heard the defendant confront the victim about going to his house and, quote, being disrespectful, end quote. The second issue concerning the defense counsel's failure to request specific instructions constituting ineffective assistance of counsel, the absence of a specific identification instruction suggested by the defendant was not likely to have influenced the jury's verdicts, particularly concerning Erica Luyo's and Troy Endenson's testimony on the events before the shooting, which means that the error did not result in the substantial likelihood of a miscarriage of justice. The court came to this conclusion because the judge provided a jury instruction on evaluating a witness's credibility. The jurors were informed to, quote, consider the availability, the opportunity, and the reliability of a witness to see or hear something in the past and then remember and later testify, end quote. Erica Lulio's testimony from the photo array clearly asserted on direct and cross-examination that she, quote, was not sure, end quote, of her identification, the prosecutor even conceded this point during closing arguments. Further, defense counsel elicited reasons for the jury to discredit Troy Endenson's testimony that he saw the defendant and the victim running towards the eventual crime scene, one such reason being that Endenson was an alcoholic under the influence the evening before and the morning of the shooting. Besides, Nina Hall's testimony about the conversation between the defendant and the victim stands as the strongest evidence that the defendant instigated the crime, and the identification instruction from defense counsel would not have influenced the jury's interpretation of this evidence. The third issue concerning the prosecutor's improper or prejudicial statements made. The court found that the prosecutor made an inappropriate statement during closing arguments that did not create a substantial likelihood of a miscarriage of justice. During closing arguments, defense counsel first did not object to the prosecutor misquoting the defendant's testimony, second made a factual assertion as to the color of the defendant's hat, and third inferred that it was more plausible for the defendant to leave the state for shooting the victim as opposed to avoiding probation. Addressing the first of these, the court found that the misquoting error inconsequential because the testimony clearly described a confrontation between the defendant and the victim. Second, with regard to the assertion about the hat, the testimony corroborated the eyewitness's statement that the defendant wore a white hat. Finally, concerning the plausibility of the defendant leaving the state, the jury had the option, as it always does, to weigh, in this case, Hill's 2007 grand jury testimony against his present testimony, unaffected by the prosecutor's assertion. Concerning the last issue, concerning the court exercising its authority under Chapter 278, Section 33E, the court found that the weight of the evidence supported the juror's verdict of murder in the first degree and therefore declined to use this authority for a new trial order or to reduce the severity of the defendant's verdict. This law enables the SJC to overturn a verdict when there is a strong belief that the verdict was a product of, and I quote, bias, misappropriation, 
apprehension of prejudice, all the while not turning the SJC into a second jury. While the possibility existed that a third person could have shot the victim, the evidence provides a strong basis that the defendant was the shooter, despite the inconsistent testimony regarding the defendant's clothing or hat. So looking at this whole case together with all of this information, what is the impact on the law? Well, Commonwealth v. Franklin impacts the standard Massachusetts courts consider when evaluating evidence pertaining to the state-of-mind exception to the hearsay rule. The SJC considered the totality of the evidence when determining the defendant's state of mind, which was a standard not applied in more recent cases that face the same or a similar issue since prior cases just considered the evidence existing in and of itself. For instance, Commonwealth v. Bins or Commonwealth v. Irene. Therefore, this suggests that the SJC will continue to apply the totality of the circumstances standard. Thank you for listening to our Massachusetts Criminal Digest episode regarding Commonwealth v. Franklin. The full summary of this case can be found at our website, newinglrev.com, that's N-E-W-E-N-G-L-R-E-V.com, under the Mass Crim Digest tab. Also, while you're there, take a look at our most recent Armand article about the Boston lockdown, as well as our forthcoming Volume 48, Book 1, print edition under Current Issue, and see who the staff is of Volume 48 under the About tab and look at Volume 48 staff. Thank you for listening. I'm the Executive Online Editor of Volume 48, Louisa Gibbs, and stay tuned for more from the New England Law Review Podcast.